episode 15 of Rigged, Ilias, Jamie, and Chris discuss Annie Dukin's motive for why she turned negative results to positive. This very important issue has not been covered well by the media, but it is the most crucial issue of the Dukin investigation. The boys get to the heart of Dukin's motive and discuss the myriad of lies created by the state to keep the truth from the people. Thanks for listening, and as always, please hit subscribe and tell your friends. Enjoy. wanted to talk about today was following up after the Duke interview with um, the attorney general's office. We wanted to follow up on, or I wanted to follow up. I think we talked about it earlier this week about Dukin at the lab and what her motive was to do what she was charged with. She was charged with um, tampering with samples and she was also charged with uh, lying on her resume and so some of the official reasons or thoughts that were leaked to, to the media was that she was rushing to get more things done. Is that correct for both of you guys? That's, that's my understanding. Is that right? That's the narrative. That's the yeah. narrative. And so what I did, and I think what we had talked about was going back to the inspector general report. And I had actually put together, um, I think last year, a little like article that kind of summed up all of the FOIA requests that I was kind of getting and looking at about Dukin's um, emails. Because to me, her emails, and, and also to me, uh, it's really important to figure out, I think, Ilias, you said last time that, or, or earlier this week when we talked, that you, you can't really do an investigation and not figure out why someone did something, right? Is that something that you had said last time? Yeah. I mean, one, um, you, you know, it's, it's a classic deflection um, uh, uh, or even a defense tactic, if appropriate, to, uh, I call it the absence uh, of the why, it meaning to, to deflect your actions by not looking at why you might have done them. Uh, because many times when you understand why you might have done something, that makes all the other ambiguities uh, um, um, simpler to understand. So, for example, when a, when a, a, a woman is found dead, statistically, uh, roughly two-thirds of the time, uh, if there's foul play involved, the, the foul play was committed by a boyfriend, husband, or some other person um, significantly involved in that woman's life. So if you just ignore that and say, well, I'm going to just deem that irrelevant and off the table, then you have 7 billion possible suspects and you don't know where to start. So you have to understand the why. You have to look at why people do things. And, and, and just to go back, Jamie, what you said, the rushing narrative doesn't make sense. Dry labbing does not put innocent people into prison. Dry labbing does not turn a negative sample into a positive. There must be another step. And whatever that other step is, is something that actually can't be explained by the rushing narrative and can't be explained by mere sloppiness. Um, unless she was rushing and contaminating samples, which would be interesting, but I don't think they ever proved that or, or bothered to try to prove that. Um, she was supposedly skipping bench scale tests and then going directly to the next step. But what that would result in is a discrepancy in a what's called a return where the sample gets sent back to her. So she's already wasted her time because now she has to do something over again. 
And what is she going to do? Spike the sample by compromising it with uh, known cocaine? Or is she going to do something else? Whatever it is, that's taking more time. So the rushing narrative never made sense to me. No. And, 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 and there has to be an explanation. Once she admits that I sometimes turn negatives to positives, the very next question has to be, Annie, why? Right. And to me, the fact that question was never asked shows that this was not a real investigation. No, but it wasn't. It was about, from the start, in my opinion, it was about pinning all of the malfeasance or any, any of any wrongdoing of the state lab, which was being transferred from the Department of Public Health to the state police. They wanted to pin it on this person, Annie Dukin, who, you know, as we've gone over, it has, you know, she's has a, a kind of a strange last name. She's dark, has a dark complexion. And uh, she, you know, is she's an easy person to kind of uh, sort out from the lab because, you know, I mean, we, we've argued this, that she her lab numbers weren't like as crazy as the people say compared to her, as the people, i.e. investigators say, compared to her uh, compatriots in the lab because people were doing 6,000, 7,000 samples while she was doing 9,000, right? Per, is that per year or, or per, yeah, per year? And, yeah. and so like, that's not that crazy to me. Well, I mean, she's up there with, only a couple other people who have ever gotten that uh, returned those numbers. So. Right. So, so she is an outlier and she definitely was going fast, but there the, are other, the point being, there are other people that were also. Uh, including including Sonia Farrakh. Including right. Sonia Farrakh, including, you know, um, Della Saunders, including, and, and then for even from month to month, things would change, I think, depending on what the priorities were in the labs and also what samples were being tested, because as they like to say, you can do a bunch of marijuana faster, right? And, and as we've pointed out, not correctly, but, you know, that's, that's for another time. Yeah, but, if you don't put it in the machine, you can do it pretty quickly. Yeah, you do a microscope test and you just look at it and they look at the hairs and say, yeah, that's, that's marijuana, which is ridiculous. But regardless, so... Um, so Annie Dukin at the, so I'm going to just read from this article that I've written and have kind of sent out that hasn't gotten any uh, traction, but in March of 2014, the OI, Massachusetts OIG and its leader, uh, Glenn Chuna, concluded an exhaustive nearly two-year investigation into the Hinton lab. And um, so, and, you know, as a result, like, or Annie Dukin was arrested in September of 2012 and her arrest and subsequent confession of knowingly turning negative test results into positive called into question, not just Dukin's test results in the over 60,000 cases she was testing while working at the lab for nearly 10 years, but also the test results of her, of her coworkers because she was caught um, forging coworkers' initials on official documentation. And so um, as they kind of went through the investigation, they came on page 113 and 114 of the re report. I wrote, oddly, rather than investigating Dukin's motives on page 113 and 114 of the OIG report, Massachusetts had uh, had more to say about what they sh what Annie Duke and Shirley was not doing. So here's what it what it uh, says in the report: The OIG did not determine Duke's motives for tampering with her aliquots. 
However, the OIG finds that Dukin's motive was not based on a zealous desire to convict criminal defendants, given that her percentage of negative findings was consistent with the percentage of negative findings of all other chemists. And Is that we'll, a good point segue into the new OIG emails that we found? <laughs> yeah. That is that is a segue to that, but let's let's first start with what they say. The this is because this is damning the entire lab when they say this because the the natural question from that is okay. All right, so she had the same average of negative samples. What was that average? Ninety six percent for the entire lab was positive. Ninety six percent of all the street drugs coming into that lab was positive for whatever drugs they were submitted to by the police. Now, Chris, please, um, do, do you have that email up and available that we had just found? Just one second. Let me all just right. bring um, well, While I'm looking for this, I, I just wanted to say, like, again, the question why she was doing what she was doing, uh, they could have asked her that when they interviewed her again, right? So like right. the attorney general's office brought her in, interviewed her about Farrick, they could have asked, why did you do what you did? And they did not. No, they, they almost seemed completely disinterested in what she did. It was almost brought up in passing by her a couple of times, like when I did what I did or when I had my problems. It's like, Annie, why did you have those problems? Why were you doing that? That's well, the most logical a, question. This is a blind spot in, in, in and why the government it, as, as a general matter, fails to police itself, which is actually the very reason why we have an Office of Inspector General to begin with. Uh, and I notice in any police misconduct case, nobody ever asks why. Why did you plant evidence? Because you know the answer. It's to get a conviction. Right. I, I think people are naive if they think that there's any other reason and that for that reason, investigators investigating law enforcement never ask, why did you do that? Because they know the answer. And if, and if by the way, if you go around and take a census of every employee with that question, you're going to get the same answer. We want convictions. There's nobody out there saying, oh, I just call balls and strikes. There's nobody who, 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 who subjectively thinks that that's what they're doing. So right. I think that- Besides that, Martha Coakley in front of the Supreme Court. Right. So, so I think that what's interesting is comparing her percentage to other percentages of, ne of positive negative is itself kind of a, a, a silly thing. It's like saying, well, I don't think Sammy Sosa took steroids because he's hitting about the same number of home runs as Mark McGuire. That's a pretty dumb statement if you make that. Um, uh, and that's exactly what they did. They said everyone else is therefore innocent. And we're going to compare Annie Dukin's percentages, and they're similar. So therefore, she didn't have a guilty motive. Yeah. And to just to clear that up for anyone who doesn't follow baseball from 20 years ago, Mark McGuire was also on steroids. So <laughs> that's why that makes no sense, because you're comparing uh, one baseball player uh, who was on steroids to another baseball player who was on steroids who was hitting a ton of home runs. But, um, okay, so I pulled up the email and... Um, just speaking of dumb statements, on page one of the OIG's report, it says, Dukin was a sole bad actor at the drug lab, uh, dot, dot, dot. The OIG found no evidence that Dukin tampered with any drug samples assigned to another chemist, even when she played a role in confirming other chemist's test results. 
So now pulling up this email, uh, it's a correspondence between one of the lawyers in the inspector general's office writing to the general counsel and they're describing a discussion they had with um, the consultants that they hired, Mike Wolf and Jack Mario. Um, and one of the things that the consultants note is uh, this looks like a chemist acting nefariously and quote, helping the sample along by spiking it. So they they found a the context. What, what did they do? They, how did they find? So they're they're going back through um, records from the Hinton Lab to try and identify instances where there were samples that were run through the GCMS uh, machines multiple times. And so then, after they identify those, they're trying to look for odd cases that don't look right. And so uh, these cons consultant said the sample doesn't feel right he thinks this is weird uh it's unlikely that the chemist would be able to ultimately clean up the sample uh that nicely even with an extraction um so again i've explained this before but um sort of out of ordinary course if there is a weak sample maybe a residue uh that was left on um, like a pipe or inside a needle, like sometimes there wouldn't be enough of the drug on there in order for the GCMS to pick it up. So then it'd be sent back to the primary chemist and they would um, try and um, uh, get a more purified um, sample. But in any event, in this particular instance, um, it's run multiple times. So the, the original chemist is Sasha Haynes. Um, he then sends it to Michael Lawler to run on the GCMS machines. It comes back negative. And then for whatever reason, Annie Dukin becomes involved and they run it several more times. And eventually uh, it comes out perfectly cocaine. And so, um, uh, the assistant general counsel asked, uh, I asked the consultant if a perfect peak looks like a standard would look. He said yes, but he also said um, that it's unlikely that this sample would have been able to be cleaned up this nicely. So um, <laughs> essentially they have evidence that either Sasha Haynes spiked it or Annie Dukin spiked it. But regardless, I mean, like, even if, like, best case scenario for the government, it was Dukin. However, uh, there's still that portion of the OIG's report where it said they found no evidence that Dukin tampered with any drug samples assigned to another chemist, even when she played a role in confirming another chemist's test results. So, like, one of those propositions is clearly not true, and they have the evidence. And, I, and potentially both are not true. Right. And, that's, and I right. think both, and I think that is the reality that both are not true because number one, how did they go through every other chemist test to like, how did they determine that, that she didn't mess with another chemist's thing? Did she just say it? Like what's the methodology or they went through a random sampling and, and found like, no, like how can you tell number one, that she did not mess with another chemist's, <laughs> uh, aliquots or tests. You can't. There's no way to do that. That's number one. But since they didn't determine her motive, 
they wouldn't, you know, there's no way of saying, oh, well, she didn't do this because she wasn't motivated. I mean, I think what they're saying is she wasn't motivated to help prosecutors so she wouldn't just randomly go into other chemist samples and mess with them, you know? But I... A couple other other interesting points. Uh, One is the date uh, of this. uh, And I think that was um, presented a problem for the official narrative because that was from 2004. Is that right? Uh, Chris. Right. And so uh, I think, yeah, yeah, it's a little head scratcher because the narrative that we're told was, well, Dukin maybe was, was rushing more at the end. Maybe we can blame this on Melendez Diaz, which by the way, the fact that the government tried to pass some of the blame, some of this on Melendez Diaz is sort of uh, rich in, in irony. Um, uh, given that they fought Melendez-Diaz precisely to avoid the types of headaches that they, they have now encountered, uh, which is to have chemists testifying under oath. Um, but, uh, so, but this was in 2004. Second thing, uh, you know, this, this, what we're talking about here is the, uh, you know, a, a drug test involves a comparison of a known standard to the sample. So here we're talking about mishandling of the sample. Previously, we've been talking about what they were doing with the standard. And what's interesting is in both of these parallel operations, I hear the phrase cleaning up. And I want to know, I'd like someone to present me with a manual that tells me how you clean up a sample. Because I'm very curious how you clean up a standard um, that, that you don't tell people about. And then in the meantime, you clean up samples that you're not supposed to be doing either. And, and so there's this dark art that seems to be intertwined with the entire process. And I'd like to hear, I mean, I understand that there's concentration issues when you make an aliquot. I get that. And presumably that's what separates a new chemist and a bad chemist from an experienced chemist or a good chemist. But nevertheless, what is this cleaning up process that seems to be uh, uh, taking place in the shadows that we never otherwise would have heard about? Well, they say cleaning up and I say tampering. What's the difference between cleaning up? What is cleaning up and how is cleaning up not tampering? Those questions are, are the ones that need to be resolved. Like if, if there's not, as we explained last time, uh, something like an equipment malfunction where you can tell that the GCMS injector needle was broken, right? Why don't they just call the sample a negative? Right. right. And why do they keep retesting and retesting and re- like for remember the Ilias, that one that you had um, from Kate Corbett in the fall, late summer, early fall of 2011, where they did it five different times. Again, how is that rushing or like that's the whole that's other people right. in the lab. Why do they keep retesting negative samples? Well, so th- this is a good point, I think, to just re- re- reiterate the, the quick points of, 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 of my client's case. So my client was convicted and, and was sentenced to two years and a day um, for uh, possession of a uh, of cocaine when in fact it was a uh, crushed up nut. It was cashew. And what's interesting is Annie Dukin was the primary on his sample uh, and she got it. And, and, and by the way, this was, uh, I believe, before Melendez Diaz. So we can't blame that. Um, and she, uh, 
puts it into, she may have dry labbed it, we don't know, um, but she puts it into a standalone GC machine, which is an oddity in and of itself because it doesn't generate an electronic record. It, it, all it does is spit out a piece of paper. Uh, and that piece of paper could be crumpled up and thrown in the trash, and that test never happened. Um, and yet she 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 puts it in this machine, which is inconsistent with rushing, right? Because a standalone GC test at a minimum takes a, a while to run. Uh, you know, you got to load it, you got to run it, you got to wait for the printout, you got to read it. A bench test that you do or don't do is much faster. Um, but she puts it in the standalone GC sees that it's oleic acid, uh, and then put, presents an aliquot to Daniel Renchkowski, which I believe shows a weak sp- uh, attempted peak that is not sufficient uh, to, to, to match, but, but, but would, would have been consistent with cocaine. But that weak peak is in, in the midst of the other peaks for oleic acid, uh, again, consistent with cashew. Renchkowski returns it, even though there's no log file or discrepancy log generated, which is a, a huge red flag for this lab. Uh, but it, then she sends it back, and this time you get a peak of cocaine, again, in the midst of the oleic acid. That would be consistent with spiking. And that would be consistent with someone getting a sample that they didn't know what it was. She didn't even bother probably bench testing it because she said, looked at it. And remember, she separates her knowns and her unknowns. She probably put this in the unknown pile, which got run through the standalone GC. And she said, hmm, oleic acid, that's not illegal. So let me do some magic on this sample and then present it to Renchkowski. And her mistake in this case was that she didn't put enough cocaine in. And he didn't get a good enough peak. So he sends it back and she said, oh, let me fix that. So to me, my, my client's case is uh, pretty stark evidence that the official narrative is incorrect and, and doesn't make sense. And this was only with two tests. Chris, the case you described has five tests. And I would say if I was in charge of a lab, I would prohibit my chemists from doing five tests on a sample. I would prohibit it. Just like I would prohibit, uh, you know, my customers um, at, at, a, uh, at, a, uh, at a, a convenience store of talking to a customer in line for more than 30 seconds because you're going to just slow the, down the whole uh, uh, business. So why would you allow five tests on a single sample? Right. And I just want to point out, we've been talking about two different instances, like even most charitably to the government, let's say Dukin was responsible for both. Um, you know, the OIG's stated narrative is just, it's not true. And they knew it's not true. And they didn't correct the report. And uh, the other thing I wanted to note was that, you know, the SJC, the Massachusetts State Supreme Court, relied in multiple cases on the representation that Dukin was not tampering with other people's samples. So there's a case uh, called Commonwealth v. Resende. That's 475 Mass 1 uh, from 2016. And uh, in it, let me just bring up the quote. Uh, This is a case where um, defendants found out that Dukin was involved in the testing, even though she wasn't the primary or secondary chemist. And they were trying to convince the court that her malfeasance could have 
infected other cases, but they um, state specifically uh, that the inspector general had found that she didn't tamper with other people's samples. So on page 13 to 14, it says, the office of the inspector general found no evidence that Dukin tampered with drug samples that were assigned to other chemists. So um, this is in 2016 when the uh, case was argued and the opinion was issued. That email that we read uh, quotes from earlier was from 2014. Um, they, their office uh, submitted a supplemental report in 2016, but that was before the Resende case was argued. So um, they should have been aware that uh, the parties in this case were relying on their representation, right? Right, right. right. And Yeah, and Resende is another case that drives me crazy because that case obliterates another part of the OIG narrative, which was there was a two-chemist system. Because note, Chris, what you just said, that she was involved, but she was neither the primary or the secondary. Well, what was she? Apparently, there's another chemist uh, who can be involved. Tertiary, right, the, Who I call it the mezzanine. You know, this is like the person who, um, it's like the 13th and a half floor uh, in being John Malkovich. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of crammed between two other chemists. Uh, and that the, 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 that process, which may not actually be, uh, um, I don't know if it would violate um, um, swig drug. I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but what I find interesting is why was that not actually disclosed until that case? And that was a case that actually took evidence from chemists, which was very, you know, on a broad, uh, a broader scale than typical. Um, and that was very unusual. Most of these cases didn't take that type of evidence. Um, and so that uh, is sort of um, shocking. But I, I, I will just circle back that what the OIG did in compartmentalizing and minimizing the, the, the fallout here was they looked at samples that had been tested multiple times in a GCMS machine. That is the machine that generates an electronic record, not the standalone GC. Um, but of course, if, if you did a one and done spike, if you get a sample and you spike it and then it comes back positive, OIG would never even know about it uh, under their methodology because they only look for multi-run. So think about that. That's, that means that you're only looking for cases where there was like a modicum of honesty until the final results, uh, 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 right? So, um, that's in and of it. And, and there were thousands of cases that had multi runs. Um, right. So uh, imagine how many cases were in the, uh, 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 the unlisted uh, um, category that I call the one and dones. Right. Where it came back clean and they're like, okay. And that's where, that's why I said, you can't make that determination that she didn't mess with someone else's aliquots because there's no way, you know, that there's mm -hmm. no way to determine that period. But and, this yeah. and they have been suggesting that she was doing that. They have evidence that she was in the GCMS room with the lights out. Yep. After right. she was and, benched. After and, she and was I would, benched. And I would say, what, pray tell, is anyone doing in a drug lab with the lights out? So let's, I, I want to get to her emails because her emails right. to me are something that the, uh, uh, very few media outlets have put up for public consumption. One of them was 
Um, Deborah Becker and WBUR did a great job at getting a lot of her emails and putting them up on their website where they made this whole, you know, um, bad, bad science or I, I can't read bad chemistry, what they called it. And um, it's a great little site. If you go to WBUR.com and check out the bad chemistry site, you'll see a ton of her emails and a whole timeline of, um, of you know her malfeasance and what and how what the state found. My problem with that is that it kind of it only focuses on Dukin, which is my my problem with the whole drug lab thing. And I and I say that knowing that we're doing you know now this is our second episode on Dukin, but it's important. Dukin to me, what she did isn't as important as to what the state has done to lie about what she did. That to me is what is really important about Annie Dukin. And so we, we were coming off and saying that Dukin uh, was, we were told by the OIG that Dukin was the lone bad actor and that she was not, they couldn't find out why she was doing what she did, but it was definitely not to help. A, an overzealous desire to help prosecutors convict criminal defendants was their wording. So I have an email here from November 15th of 2010 between Annie Dukin and Norfolk County DA George Papa Christos. And George Papa Christos is someone we could get into later because Annie Dukin definitely had a massive uh, romantic crush on him. But I don't, I, I feel kind of uncomfortable because it's like creepy to go into people's personal stuff. And also, she was having a lot of emotional issues at the time. But regardless, here is what it says it says, you're the best. Hey, stop and breathe. Oh, please, no apologies needed. You were wicked busy and I hated to bother you. This is what I get for uh, taking work with me on my vacay. Anyways, as for the case, with a lot of uh, coordination, tremendous amount of work and late nights and mornings, we have success. Dave Solit charged him with trafficking class B and armed robbery. Jeremy Bucci uh, has him in custody for Class A narcotic and SZE uh, school zone violation. Steve Butts charged with Class B and possession of a firearm. Chris Bader and I did a lot of work and bumped it federally because it involved the Postal Service and Homeland Security. Bucci was more than happy to hand over the files to me. And to top it all off, of the week of Halloween, the defendant, a, quote, a real winner, was charged with rape and sexual assault of a minor. Now that hit my heart closely, and for that, he needs to be locked up and throw away the key. I had the pleasure of spending some time with the young lady, the, the victim, alleged victim, and she is a sweetheart. So so very young to have to go through this ordeal, not just physically, but mentally. Needless to say, definitely we'll be making a lot of friends in the federal pen, pen named John. Ha ha. Thanks for getting back to me. Happy Monday. Hope all is well. Would you relax, please, with like 10 E's? That email right there, has so freaking much in it that that's Duke into Papa Christos. That's Duke into Papa Christos. Yeah, I mean, so a friend, so 
there are multiple issues, but certainly a forensic chemist, the only issue in a case is whether or not the sample in front of you is a drug or not, right? And so they right. shouldn't be, we talked about double blind methods earlier, certainly uh, they shouldn't be compelled to find that a drug is a drug because of other facts and circumstances in a case, right? Because that could, it's just bias. Um, aside from that though, it seems like I, I'm assuming she violated a sequestration order because I don't know how they would, how she would possibly get in touch with an alleged victim in a case unless they were just sitting outside uh, a courtroom just in the hall waiting to be called, right? And so at the beginning of a court case, the judge says, you're all sequestered, do not talk with each other, again, because it can influence your testimony. So, um, <laughs> saying, dude, there's like, how the fuck did she bump a case to a federal indictment? Like, why is a chemist working late nights to do that? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, there's one possibility, um, which is that uh, nearly uh, um, everything that Annie Dukin said uh, could be not true. Um, and she is somebody who has uh, obviously comfortable blurring the line between truth and, and falsehood. And I believe, but I don't know this uh, for sure, but uh, Jamie, you would know that she, one way she wormed her way in to, uh, with, with Papa Christos was by passing herself off as having Greek heritage, which she yes. didn't have. And, and to pull that off, she actually probably spent more time uh, boning up on Greek than she did on chemistry. Um, and, and so this is somebody who um, I think has personal issues that I don't want to speculate on, um, but that, that uh, led her uh, to, to say things that were um, uh, full of grandiosity that may not have been true. So who knows what in that email was true other than the fact that she, she, she might have been working late nights, but to what end and why? Because it doesn't sound like any of these were complicated drug cases, um, but uh, who knows? But right there, she's she wanted to not only get like that, but take all of that away. Okay, maybe she was lying out of her ass and trying to be impressive. But think about it. Like, why was she so motivated to convict this? It's, she says it all right there. She worked right. her ass off to take that guy off the streets, right? In, in part because he was accused of a crime, which, right. I mean, that to me is uh, a sex crime, which, uh, you know, that to me is a sort of a, a giant neither here nor there because it has nothing to do with the drug allegation. And he, he's, the defendant is innocent until proven guilty. And, and you have no idea. So why is that in any way factoring into your decision-making? Um, why is it even on her radar? How does she know all that about this case? It's clear that she's working with the prosecutors. And I'll give you another email for, because Norfolk County is where all of the, uh, when she got busted for taking 90 samples out of the evidence locker without, uh, like the, what got this whole case started was her doing that. All of those samples for, for Norfolk County. And here is her, Laura Martin, a, an ADA from Norfolk County, emailing Annie Dukin on January 18th of 2012, 
which was when she was supposed to be benched and like just a few months from being fired. Annie, thanks for the speedy reply. You're the best. Fortunately, I scared blank the defendant into pleading out to guilty for one year. Um, HOC suspended for two years. Thought you'd love to know defense attorneys get very concerned when the Commonwealth has certs in in lab packets, dot, 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 dot. Thanks again, Laura. Why does she give a shit? Why does she care if defense attorneys are scared? Well, what's interesting is, you know, Chris said the only the only live issue. um, uh, Well, there there are a few issues. There's the identity of the defendant, and and there's the identity of uh, or the the facts constituting possession or intent to distribute. But beyond that, the only live issue is was it illegal narcotics or not? And uh, so, I think you see the uh, a glimpse into the the source of the problem here, the, the lab certification and quote packet, which we now, we now know discovery packets were woefully inadequate and incomplete or sometimes not, not present. Um, but that, that piece of paper, a drug cert has a lot of power. It has the power to take away someone's freedom. And I think that somebody like Annie Duke and, and maybe some of these others who seem to enjoy that flirt flirtation with power um, recognize pretty quickly that that piece of paper can 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 you you can control that piece of paper, uh, and 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 so that's I think the 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 fulcrum of the problem here is that that this is way too much unregulated power that was uh, given to people who were essentially unsupervised. I I just had one thought uh, about the case that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. So if any listeners are thinking. Gosh, uh, you know, that sounded like a pretty serious case, firearms, drugs, maybe a sexual assault. I don't have any sympathy with the defendant. Um, There were multiple defendants in that case, right? So it's not just, it's not just throwing one guy under the bus potentially because you've heard the police uh, make some accusations against him, but... um, Cases can involve multiple people whose culpability is is really up for the jury to decide. It shouldn't be really based upon uh, a forensic scientist, forensic chemist, who uh, wants to throw all of them in jail. Right. 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 It could be, for example, uh, I mean, this is, uh, Chris, uh, is this not a common uh, fact pattern that you get somebody, um, uh, you arrest somebody who has large enough quantity of drugs that they could be charged with trafficking and the person in the house with them that may have been helping them do whatever they were doing, weighing things, bagging things is the girlfriend. Yeah. Or a lot of times it's like two people in a car. One guy may have no idea that there's cocaine in the trunk and like a firearm in the glove compartment, but just because it was uh, the firearm was close enough to him where he could have reached it, they charge him. Right. They overcharge. I mean, that's a methodology. You overcharge everybody. Uh, and then you get what you, you start picking off plea deals um, um, one by one. Um, uh, and so, right. So I think that's a good point that the taint would go beyond just the one person to potentially other people that we don't even know anything about. So here is this this one really from March 10th of 2011. 
from a prosecutor, uh, Deborah Payton, now Deborah Curley, for Northfolk County, who to say that she is, to me, it, she embodies what was wrong with these relationships between chemists and prosecutors because she knew full well that these chemists were rooting for her and she played into that big time. This, this to me, I mean, you guys are, are less shocked about this uh, stuff than I am because I kind of stare at it wide-eyed where you guys might be a little more jaded than me. But this to me, I was just, when I saw this, I'm like, what the f-? Anyways, oh, kids in all caps. This was from Deborah Payton to Daniel Rinkowski and Annie Dukin. Not just Dukin, but Rinkowski too. Oh, kids, this jackass has until March 28th, 2011 to change his plea. Otherwise, he can go meet blank another person that they work together with in prison. Another defendant, uh, these chemists and prosecutor worked to get convicted in prison following our last guilty verdict in parentheses, Annie and Della attributing uh, the conviction of that defendant to Annie Dukin and Della Saunders. Detective Billy Ward, uh, parentheses, my favorite detective was out of work injured because of this incident for over a month. So I have a personal vendetta against him, exclamation point. I'll keep you posted five exclamation points. Hmm. Well, I mean, Chris, I'll let you react to that as a, as somebody who, who, um, I mean, like in the defense attorney of this information about what's going on in the case before they get the sample or afterwards, right? Like it just introduces extreme amount of bias, right? She's telling them that she has a personal vendetta and that this guy injured a cop. Like what else? So as you put yourself in the, in the chemist's shoes, and I've said this repeatedly, if you're a chemist, if you're Dan Ronkowski and you're running this and it comes up negative, oh my God, I'm going to be responsible for getting a guy who injured a police officer off the streets because I didn't find the proper verdict for my crazy, I mean, obviously they don't think she's crazy, but this ADA who, who is saying that this person is a danger to society. There's right. no, like, that is a complete, there's no, uh, like you said, Chris, that is not, that goes beyond bias. It's like, you're doing a danger to society if you don't find the right verdict. So then science is totally thrown out the window. And also, by the way, with the advent of body cameras, we now know that a lot of times when cops say they were injured uh, and a defendant was responsible for it, that just isn't true. <laughs> so right. I mean, we don't have a way to go back and look at these cases to try and figure that out, but we're increasingly finding that uh, what the police write down uh, and later becomes part of the case uh, just is not factual. Right. And I, and, and I know people uh, in, 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 in the general public kind of roll their eyes when they hear the word bias, right? Because that's a, that's a pretty um, nebulous word. But let me put it to very concrete terms with biases. A, a number of years ago, they did an experiment where they took several hundred fingerprint, uh, previously matched fingerprints, and they sent those fingerprints back to the original examiner. But this time, they didn't make any suggestion 
about which fingerprint needed to match which other fingerprint, nor did they say which is the exemplar and which is the latent. The FBI, right? I, I believe so. They, they, they reversed them. And what they found is that there was a significant percentage of fingerprints that came back with different results, meaning uh, no match. So what that means is that, when, and fingerprint science is generally accepted, and we're told that you have one and only one unique fingerprint, and nobody else has that and can't be matched, uh, unless you know, you're know you the person who, who held the weapon or whatever. And what it turns out is there's a little bit of a room for fudging. And if you're not told which way to fudge, you don't know to fudge it that way. Well, what we found out in this case is that what Martha Coakley said to the Supreme Court was wrong. This is not a machine. We can't have robots doing lab work. We have human beings. And apparently human beings, if they don't like the result, can test the sample multiple times. They can, quote, clean it up. They have a bag of tricks that they can use to change that result. And guess which way they're going to change the result when they're told that the prosecutor has a vendetta or the person is a rapist or a cop uh, injurer. Right. Every time, like 96% of the time. So here's an email from January 13th of 2012. I mean, I won't, I won't read all of the emails that I have, but again, because it's important because it's not just Annie Dukin. Again, this is to Annie Khan, her, I guess, Annie Dukin's superhero name. Is that it? She, she changed her name. That, that was her, her maiden name. Her maiden name. I know she, she yeah. was telling people she was divorced when she wasn't. Annie Khan and Peter Pirro from Deborah Payton, the same prosecutor. Dear brilliant ones, all caps, huge crunch time, exclamation point, exclamation point. I know you are really backed up at this particular time. I tried to get a continuance for the trial, but I could not. I heard the certs are now in the custody of QPD, Quincy Police Department, which, by the way, most of the samples from the 90 samples from the, uh, from the June breach were from. I have the above-mentioned case scheduled to begin a trial on February 22nd, 2012. Please tell me that you will be available to testify February 24th, February 22nd, February 28th, or February 29th. Your choice, of course. Please let me know as soon as you can. These are very, all caps, very bad guys. And the judge almost released them from custody yesterday. Please, also, please, caps, please send the lab packets at your earliest convenience. All caps, thank you, millions, Deb Payton. What more needs to be said? Right. And, These are very and, bad guys. Like that's a, right. And and Jamie, I mean, that's a nice um, sort of uh, teeing up for the issue, which is with with, with the June breach and the the uh, OIG's um, inability to to construct a, a motive, um, which is that, uh, you know, the volume, I've, I've always been amazed that the high volume number of chemists, including Annie Dukin, um, are looked at only from the, um, from the supply side, just not to sound like an economist, but never from the demand side, right? Every, anyone who has been around the block once knows that supply and demand, right? So mm -hmm. why is Annie Dukin testing a large number of samples well, one reason is because prosecutors are hounding her to test a large number uh, uh, of samples. And why are prosecutors hounding Annie Dukin? And I think if she's malleable, that could be a reason. 
if she's accessible uh, in a way that I, I, uh, I think uh, it creates too uh, informal of a barrier between chemists and prosecutors, that's another reason. I mean, prosecutors shouldn't be having these sort of open heart email dialogues with lab chemists. They shouldn't. There should be sort of a more than an arm's length relationship. Same um, thing with Sonia Farrick. Like, why is this one chemist analyzing more cocaine samples than anyone in the history of the lab? Oh, it turns out she was a recreational cocaine user before becoming a drug lab chemist. Right. right. So, so the, 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 the high volume has never been actually studied the right way, which is what are the factors that led to the high volume? Um, and, uh, and, and so that would be, um, not just that you had a high volume, but why did you, and how, uh, how is that even physically possible? And what were the, what were the drivers that should have been looked at? And that would have led right to, um, the, 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 the different, um, district attorney's offices. One other point really quickly, um, there's a there's a interesting thing that happened uh, in 2012 that has never received any media um, uh, attention, which is that the Commonwealth, through the governor's office and Norfolk DA's office and Department of Public Health, put together a lab outreach plan. And this was really to 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 get ahead of the media on this issue, uh, and to reach because they knew they were going to make disclosures. Create the narrative. Create the narrative, which they obviously did, and I'm guessing that we're reading uh, when we read these emails and 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 or read the excerpts from the OIG. We're actually reading from the 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 lab outreach uh, strategy, but that there there was no um, there, there was no transparency there, and and I tried to get those documents in my case and couldn't get them. And it's interesting that Norfolk DA's office is involved there, so that's something that should have also received attention which was, what was the goal of that media outreach strategy? Was it to minimize the fallout? Was it to, to harm the rights of criminal defendants? Um, never, there's never been any reflection. And did the media, was the media spoon-fed junk that they have never gotten mad at and investigated why they were fed junk? Yeah, they, they were willingly and gleefully fed junk. And this is, in the media, it's not just Channel 5 in Boston or Channel 7 in Boston and the Boston Globe. I mean, the Boston Globe has actually been one of the outlets that have that hasn't just swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. They've been going deep, and they've discovered a lot of some of the stuff that we're talking about. Some of these emails have been up on the Globe as well, but they released them like two days before Christmas. <laughs> I remember that's the first day in in December of 2012, December like 23rd, um, two days before Christmas. They released this huge thing that I found because I'm obsessed with this crap, obviously. But uh, no one else picked up on, it. and it was Dukin's relationship with the DAs and Papa Christos. Like they had all, uh, some, not the emails that I'm going over, but some that looked awfully suspicious, and that's what kind of set me down the rabbit hole when I saw that. But like the Globe will release it, they'll get spoon-fed lies, and then they'll regurgitate lies to the public, and then they'll. Oh, by the way, here's the truth. If you watch the Spotlight movie, they were releasing the truth. The, the spotlight or the globe was releasing the truth in trickles, like on Fridays on one-off pieces and never following up on it and doing a huge expose that, you know, a front page expose, they were burying the lead as they say on right. the I being on the priest molesting kids. This is a pattern. 
Right. I can't give the globe high marks here because uh, one, I, what you said that these have been sort of, I think, controlled releases too. Um, I think even the Papa Christos reporting is really fueling a narrative that's, that's a, a, a sleight of hand, right? The fact that there's some titillating facts about Annie Dukin makes you not think about the actually shocking facts that we now know that were taking place in both labs that had nothing to do with Annie Dukin. Uh, three, there was sort of some race baiting. Uh, the Globe was was leading the charge of scaring the public about uh, having Annie Dukin um, convictions overturned. And look at all the scary people, many of whom are not white, that are going to be back in your community uh, rampaging. Um, and I think that was irresponsible reporting um, on the part of the Globe. Uh, and then finally, uh, there was a, a video piece in, in that that I took a t uh, interest in in my case because it involved a similar fact pattern of someone who was caught possessing something that wasn't drugs, but maybe was trying to convince other people that it was drugs. And the 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 wording used to describe that person as a low life creep, who uh, and a double crosser who then double-crossed people and then got double-crossed. And it was sort of all done with, with like a, 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 a chuckle and a smirk. And that video has been, by the way, since taken down, you can't find it. Um, so, And there's never been any like reporting by the Globe about its own reporting or why it reported things wrong because its source was the government, right? That's the, its source for all of this. Was, it wasn't defense attorneys. They've been doing pretty well. They've been covering, uh, you know, what's been happening as we get more documents. And I think they've been doing pretty well. Um, one of the other things, though, I the wanted... The Globe, you mean, Chris? I'm sorry? Who do you think is doing pretty well? The Globe. Um, and also WBUR has been following the drug lab stuff, uh, at least for the past several months. But um, the other thing I, I did want to say, though, um, earlier when you were talking, uh, Ilias, you asked whether or not anyone tried to figure out whether it was physically possible for these chemists to be doing the number of analyses that they were claiming they did. So we did try and do that for Farrick with her most um, curious month. And it, it turns out she would have to be doing an analysis uh, like every eight and a half minutes and that's without um, having lunch or taking bathroom breaks. Or any other type of break. Right. <laughs> so, but Martha right. Coakley said that they're machines and they, you know, just, so if they're a machine, then they don't really need a bathroom break. But the machine, the machine has a, a fixed number of carousel slots, right? And they only had, what, at Hinton, two working GCMSs? Um, so you can't actually, I mean, even if you were like perfect, in, in unloading and loading and cleaning and calibrating and doing all that stuff, and there was zero downtime, you still have a, a finite number of samples that can be processed, pushed through that lab. Um, and uh, and so you so that you can't, at some point, you can't do that many. Uh, and, it's, and, and by the way, these people are also sending lots of emails, as we now know, um, and they're flirting with prosecutors and they're, um, talking about Skittles or M&Ms or whatever. Um, uh, and Farak is taking numerous personal breaks. Um, and so we know that there's many reasons why you would never be, be able to achieve and sustain those rates. Right. 
And so here, just to kind of, I, I want to do one last email here. I mean, there's there's more and more where Duke and like jokes about adding five years to a defendant's case if she has to drive to Brockton and adding 10 years if he pisses, if a defendant pisses her off and doesn't take a plea deal, right? But here's one from George Papachristos to Annie after she was removed. We'll go over the June breach in the next episode, I think, and also the general Hinton uh, lab from the OIG materials that have been released because all the chemists were interviewed. And it's interesting to go through and see what they say about Annie because none of them have any clue about the prosecutors. That's the other thing. Like, well, at least in the OIG interviews, in the state police interviews, they a lot of the chemists said that Dukin was close with the prosecutors and that house somehow never made it to the media. But um, in the OIG interviews, the OIG never even thought about the prosecutors. That was not even on their radar about uh, like her relationship with the prosecutors and the all the chemist's relationship with the prosecutors who were, you know, there, there's bits and pieces where they're saying, oh, prosecutors were pressuring them to do more samples like this month. But there's nothing really like saying, oh, well, what was their relationship with them? Did they feel like they were working for them? But regardless... On Tuesday, November 22nd, 2011, this is like, you know, three or four months after Dukin was supposedly benched from testing, George Papacristo sent an email to Annie saying, thank you, with like, again, with the exclamation points, there's like 15 exclamation points after thank you. Deb, Deb Payton and all of us were talking about how much we miss you now that you've been promoted <laughs> four exclamation points. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Like that right there, like clearly they're all buddies, you know, like they all, like they're sending her an email um, basically saying, we need you. We miss you. Deb Payton sent an email once saying, I need you on this case. You have to come in here. Like you, I need you. Why the hell did they need Annie Dukin? One chemist. Why do they need her? You know? What was the date of that email that you? The date wrote? of that email was November twenty second, twenty eleven. Okay, so so the the promotion that is being referred to is a non existent promotion. This yep. is actually that Annie Dukin was benched, um, and by the way, benched is sort of like a charitable term, right? That evokes sports where a player is not performing well uh, and is made to sit on the on the bench and sort of stew while somebody else gets a turn. Um, here, what what benched is means is that she committed misconduct that would have been a fireable offense, should have been publicly disclosed, but instead they came up with this solution, which is no more testing for you, but you just sit here in a room and you write the protocols that we don't have, um, but you can continue to, I mean, right? She was going to continue to testify. She did testify. She, I believe, tested additional samples, so it wasn't really benched. No, but. But she controlled the narrative as far as prosecutors were concerned. She told them, I got a promotion. I'm in charge of drafting protocols. Well, actually, okay. So she, she did clarify that it wasn't a promotion. On Wednesday, on the following day, she sent a reply that said, thanks to you all with a smiley face. Not a promotion, just a reassignment. There is a time constraint to get both the drug terrorism lab protocols written and accredited. Quote, uh, parentheses, the AG's office is up my ass. I have temporarily taken the role of medical and drug advisor for the Boston, for Boston and South Shore. 
If you guys need anything, feel free to contact me. It's no problem. It actually keeps my sanity. Tell Deb I may need a vacation before I go back to Greece next summer. She needs to have some scotch and soda and Heineken drinks for me in Aruba. Right. Well, yeah. So, I mean, she's not telling people that the reason that she's reassigned is because of malfeasance. Correct. Um, so I think that she, that was just her clarifying the record. She certainly led whoever to believe that she had been promoted. Um, and okay. I like the throw in terror, when in doubt, throw in terrorism as the thing that, that, that justifies your otherwise difficult to explain actions. Um, yeah, that's hard for listeners to understand. They, they had a chemical threat laboratory in the same building. Yeah, so, the, and that was also being run by, um, uh, what's your name? Uh, Julianne Nasif. So Julianne Nasif, we'll, d- we'll cover this in the next episode because I, like I said, I want to go through the Hinton Lab itself and the, and the organizational structure. But Julianne Nasif not only ran the Hinton Lab, but she ran the AIDS testing lab, uh, the, the chemical terrorism lab, which Annie is referring to here, and a bunch of other labs. And she really did not care about the Hinton Lab. And when this went down, um, she only knew Annie as a stellar employee. So she did everything to keep Annie employed at the lab because she knew about Annie's personal problems. And she was trying to kind of... Um, like slide her over to one of her other labs to keep Annie who she thought was a stellar employee. But as the investigation went on as to what Annie was actually doing there, um, I think she saw the writing on the wall and started working her out the door. Right. And, and we should mention she was, Ms. Nassif was also in charge of, of the Amherst lab. Um, Correct. That, so um, she's sort of, you know, over two in, in drug labs, but. Uh, <laughs> and you couldn't be more over two than that. That's over two striking out on three pitches with the bat on your shoulder. All right. Well, All right. so, oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say it's a sort of a good point to stop at because I mean, that captures it. Um, it you know, two of the worst run labs possibly in America that we know of. Oh, and you know, and something else I want to go over, Chris, um, someone from Canada sent this drug lab an email uh, from a Canadian drug lab asking if they actually use a fume hood and use like basic equipment for testing. They were like asking these labs uh, you know, basics of chemistry and chemical analysis uh, for drug testing. So I think... Could be a much bigger problem is what you're saying. I I think it could have international implications and like, I mean, if you think in Mississippi they're doing anything different, uh, I I highly doubt it. Um, But anyways, that's, you know, that's going to be for a different show. But uh, for now, like you said, I think that is a good time to start. Anything else to conclude, guys? No, I think this was fun. Okay, this was fun. Great. All right. So as always, thank you for listening to uh, the rig podcast. Please do subscribe uh, and give us a comment on wherever you get your uh, podcasts and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the rig podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.